So you're only going to get three this morning. <laughs> Our New Testament passage that I'm going to focus on demonstrates to us that the spectacular gets good press, but it holds seldom very much change or possibility of personal and relational growth. At best, it tends to create heroes and entertains us with false hope. And the context of this passage is that it's Passover, freedom from Egypt, and the possibility of future liberation. And along comes someone who has just raised Lazarus from the dead. Spectacular to everyone. Except to Jesus. Because if you remember the story before he does this amazing miracle, he weeps. Why? If it was me or some local faith healer, I'd be going, hey guys, look at this. Look what God's going to do through me. Jesus, sweet. Would you rather have God who can heal people from the dead? Or would you rather have God who weeps? And even the disciples are trying to ride the coattails of this spectacularity. I think I made up a new word. <laughs> Crowds gather. They process, a parade starts, and perhaps these Greeks that want to see Jesus were part of that spectacle. And they come to see Lazarus for themselves. They really wanted to see, to understand who this spectacular guy was. But to Jesus, this wasn't the point. And it's interesting, in verse 16, just before our passage, we have this verse that says, the disciples didn't get it either until later. And I can imagine these Greeks coming to Philip. Philip was a Greek name, by the way, so they probably felt comfortable coming to him. And saying, who is this guy? Is he a buddy of yours? doesn't seem to make sense because he doesn't talk about whether he wants to see 
responding to their question, Jesus doesn't talk about the Greeks or raising people from the dead or even the resurrection. He starts to talk about death. His death. I didn't come to be spectacular. I came to model dying well. And here is what that looks like. It is dying well that defines my glorification. You and the Greeks are attracted to a God who performs spectacular miracles. But I am the God who suffers, who weeps, the God who dies. Is that who you want to see? To know? To understand? Now there is a paradox in our scripture today from Genesis. How do you die well? We tend to not want to talk about it. We want to get the most out of life and deny or avoid death. And yet Jesus died to live. And this was life-giving for him. And it was the life that he gave for others. And somehow this death saves us. Now since the death and resurrection are such central tenets of the Christian faith, shouldn't we perhaps grapple with how exactly that works? Barbara Brown Taylor grapples with it well in sharing her struggles with what we really mean when we affirm that Jesus died for our sins. Here's what she says. Yes, I believe it, she says. But how did that work exactly? Were they all, all these sins piled up at the foot of the cross? Sins past, sins to come? And when he breathed his last, they simply vanished? Or was it more like a ledger in the hands of an angry God, with every person's name followed by a list of deaths? And every time God wrote down another one, God said, someone's going to have to pay out for this. And then one day Jesus says, I will, I'll pay the whole thing. And that was that. God closed the book and threw it in the trash. Only... How did something that happened 2,000 years ago affect what I may do tomorrow? Does Jesus go on dying for our sins? What kind of God would require that? Sorry, folks. But do you want to believe in God who killed his own son his son? Maybe your resurrection isn't the end game to Jesus. It's almost as if Jesus sees that as a given. He takes it for granted. The end game is dying well. And because this is such a paradox, Jesus can only use metaphors and images to communicate this bigger-than-life message. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, to do what he came to do. And the good news is that you and I are invited to join him in this glorification. But what does joining him look like? Let me try to explain. The metaphor. This is what it looks like. We are grains of sand, wheat, that only produce significant fruit if we're resurrected. 
power of suffering. His suffering identifies with our suffering. Our suffering is now eternally linked with his. This is no easier to hear now than it was then. We want a Savior that prevents us from suffering, not one that invites us into it. And the message he gives us is that no matter how hard we try to avoid pain, prevent conflict and change, we will likely find out that in so doing, we have actually avoided life as well. C.S. Lewis, the great literary expert, his mother died when he was nine years old. And it was such a painful experience that he made an active decision as a nine-year-old never to let himself love anything that much again. And so he went through most of his life not allowing himself to love in any kind of a romantic way until he was in his mid-fifties. And he met this divorcee from England who wanted to stay in England, in England and not go back to her. Sorry, she was from America. And he met her in England and she didn't want to go back to America because of the stigma of divorce. And so in his mind, he married her to help her stay in the country. In his heart, you could tell there was more going on, but he was not going to let that happen. And it did. He could not help himself. He fell deeply in love. And it was healing from the death of his mother. But within a year, this woman was diagnosed with cancer. And within another year, she died. And as she goes through this grieving process, he buries his spouse and is sitting with her little son or walking across the meadow, at least in the movie Shadowland, he says, the little boy chose safety, the old man chooses suffering. Jesus calls us to hate our lives to save them, and suggests that if we love our lives, we will lose them. What I think this might mean, partially anyway, is that pursuing our own comfort, safety, and superiority will only end up belittling our lives. To hate life means to let go of those bad certainties and pursue God, the pathway to life and abundance. But it is a choice. And Jesus had two choices. And perhaps he's saying so to me. We can build a cocoon of safety and close, he can build a cocoon of safety and close himself off. Suffering. Stop walking around amongst the crowds and go underground. He could tone down his rhetoric, his message, and say things nicely. He could be a little more careful who he eats with and condemn the marginalized instead of the religious political leaders. That sounds more like loving your life to save But instead, he chose a life of self-envy, of self-giving, of loving. And loving always contains the possibility of suffering. Now I want to be clear here. Suffering is not the goal. It's a byproduct of the 
And this is where he invites us to join him. This is the way of the cross. Grain can't grow unless the seed dies. To experience love, one must do more than love their life. This can be a very different message than most of us were taught. That Jesus paid the price for our sins. In John, we are called to die to a safe, hidden, and protected life. We are called to a radical life of love. A life where this message matters so much that he was willing to lose his life and show people what it meant and how crucial it was rather than just talk about it. He was willing to die to promote and support a community of love. He told us that suffering is not to be avoided at all costs. He also told us that suffering does not mean that God is mad at you. In fact, when the purpose of suffering is greater than you,